0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond. I'm Sylvia Leatham and with me in studio today are Trina O'Connell and our producer Gavin Byrne. You can find us on the web at cybernia.ie and on Twitter under at cybernia. Coming up on the show today, we talk to the curator of the Science Gallery's Memory Lab exhibition about how memory works. We'll have an interview with an astrophysicist who will help us debunk some moon myths. And we'll have a UCC lecturer on the line to talk about what might be the best-named science communication initiative ever. I'm a scientist. Get me out of here. First, we'll take a look at some news stories
1: that caught our eye this week. Uh, Triana, what have you got for us Um, Recent generation of corneal cells from patient cells in Ireland. So the Irish Blood Transfusion Service in conjunction with scientists in DCU and with the Royal Victoria Eye and Ear Hospital are developing techniques that have been based on techniques previously described in the US and they've been further refined in DCU's National Institute for Cellular Biotechnology for harvesting stem cells from a patient's cornea or from a donor cornea and using these stem cells that they've harvested to grow new corneal membranes and then transplant them into patients so you don't have to rely on donors donating um, already good corneas to begin with. Um, so that should take a lot of pressure off the Blood Transfusion Service Board when it gets up and running. Will that mean um, new eyes for people who can't see? It, if your cornea is damaged and replacing it will help you to see. The cornea is this this layer just at the very front of your eyes, It's the bit you scratch off when you think you're taking your contact lens off. I've done that. Yeah, So replacing it is, is quite handy in patients who've had them burned off or in, in patients with um, diseases that have caused them to have de- degenerated corneas.
0: Okay, interesting. Um, our uh, fellow Sibernia journalist, Marie Boren, can't be with us in studio today, but she did send in a couple of interesting stories. And um, The first one I'm going to talk us through now. Um, it's about robots and the possibility of robots becoming more human-like, which I think is... Something that we would all like to see. We welcome our new robot over north. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, our standard view of advanced robotics uh, dictates that no matter how lifelike a robot appears or intelligent it seems, the effect is offset by the awkward, jerky body movements of mechanical parts. Uh, But now researchers at Auckland Bioengineering Institute in New Zealand have come up with a soft, squishy alternative in the form of stretchy, rubbery artificial muscles. Uh, Lead researcher Dr Ian Anderson explained that the muscles are electroactive structures made of two layers of conducting carbon grease, separated by an insulating polymer film that can stretch by more than 300%. So these artificial muscles are then attached to a motor, And when voltage is applied, the muscles work together, contracting one after the other um, as the insulator is squashed, flattens and then stretches repeatedly in reaction to positive and negative charges accumulating on either side. So it's mimicking the action of uh, muscles in humans. Um, So what what does this look like? Uh, Well, what an onlooker would see is a device that wobbles. Um, this would not only supply robots with muscles that look and act much more like ours, but also these artificial muscles can reverse the process in order to create and store energy. So you could have a potentially independently powered robot. I'm looking forward to the, the day they create a, a hugging robot. That doesn't look creepy. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be nice if you were lonely.
1: Uh you can get stuff for that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> on the internet, probably. Yes, everything is on the internet. That's true, that's true. Uh,
1: Trina, you've got another story, another Irish one? There's a new diagnostics chip platform being developed um, in collaboration with scientists in the BDI in DCU, UC Berkeley and the Universidad del paricio in Ch- Chile. And... It's a platform which is, it's essentially what people sometimes call lab on a chip where you can put many tests on this microfluidic platform and it allows you to use a very tiny sample and get a very quick result. So instead of sending it off to a huge device in a hospital laboratory, you can do it on the bench or on a desktop somewhere. So they've they have got a new method which you can take the cells directly out of the blood by trapping them in trenches. And the methods, the old sort of style chips use these very complicated pumps to push the push the sample through but this new one the device is first treated with a vacuum and then when samples are added the air that comes in with the sample alters the pressure caused by the surface and it drags the sample through the channels and it has amazing potential for becoming a cheap rapid point of care diagnostic platform for many diseases so while they haven't got specific diseases planned for it as yet... You could, in theory, put any test for any disease that you wanted onto this platform and ch- check for it, which would be much cheap and be very valuable for point of care and for in places where large, expensive devices just aren't feasible. Mm.
0: Is there any uh, indication of when that could be actually used in the field?
1: They're trialling uh, vitamin B9 in DC at the moment. Um, and it's looking good. So they're trying to try other tests on the platform. But um, it, it might be a couple of years before you start buying them in the shops. OK,
0: sounds like one to watch anyway.
1: Uh, so our last story is a sort of a, a fun story,
0: which uh, Marie has titled Free Dinner for Schmucks. Um, the more attractive your dinner date is, the less likely they are to pick up the cheque, apparently. Uh, Or so uh, says Dr. Michael Stirrat of the University of St. Andrews uh, in a paper entitled The Effect of Attractiveness on Food Sharing Preferences in Human Mating Markets. The study involved 416 participants who were asked to rate their own attractiveness, that of their partners and their preference to pay or be paid for. The results, perhaps, were unsurprising. Guys like to pay for girls with higher facial attractiveness and women prefer for a good-looking guy to foot the bill. For both sexes, it was found that the more attractive someone thought they were, the bigger their assumption that the hapless date paid for dinner. The paper suggests that the underlying evolutionary psychology shows that nothing much has changed since the days when we wore loincloths. The hunter-gatherer men would use their hunting spoils to show off to attract mating attention prior to having any offspring. So if a guy picks up the check, he probably wants a second date. On the other hand, there is also evidence of a direct meat for sex trade in traditional societies such as the Shara Hanwa of the upper Rios Puros in South America. So clearly dating or mating was as complicated back then as it is now.
2: I wonder if they take into account the reach. The reach is very important for me. It, um, I think that has great implications. That's where you may not have any intention of paying the bill, but you kind of reach for it to go <laughs> and let the other person go, no, 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 no. Uh, I think that's, that's uh, I think the sociological implications of the reach is important. Mm. <laughs>
1: yeah. I'm just glad Superquins butchers take money for meat. <laughs> it's a lot simpler. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that.
0: Now, before I forget, I went along to the Science Gallery a few days ago to talk to the curator of the Memory Lab exhibition. Here's what I learned about memory and the show itself. I'm here at the Science Gallery in Dublin with Professor Shane O'Mara of uh, the Trinity College Institute of Neuroscience, and he is also the curator of the Memory Lab exhibition that's going on at the Science Gallery at the moment. So Professor O'Mara, tell us, how does memory actually work?
3: Well, if I knew the answer to that, I would get a Nobel Prize, and uh, I I don't mean to be flippant when I I make a statement like that. Uh, We know quite a bit about the different parts of the brain that are engaged uh, when you try to remember things. Uh, We know that uh, the frontal lobes, for example, are more active when uh, you're trying to remember uh, short items of information for a short period of time, like a telephone number or something like that. Um, What we suspect Is that uh, to uh, encode a memory in the brain, in other words, to have the brain change as the result of experience, that there are changes at the contact points between brain cells. Uh, These contact points are known as synapses. And uh, it appears from uh, the the wide variety of studies that have been done to date that this is the the principal place at which what's known as plasticity occurs. So, uh, for reasons that are not very well understood, uh, a memory causes in some way uh, synapses to become plastic and uh, experiences that you have end up being encoded as the result of changes at synapses.
0: Is there a difference between short-term and long-term memory?
3: So The, the straightforward answer is that by definition there is. Uh, a short-term memory is a memory that lasts only for a few seconds or at most perhaps uh, uh, tens of seconds to a minute or two. and. Uh, good examples of this are being able to remember a telephone number that somebody's just called out to you while you write it down. Um, so in that sense, there is a, def- a difference between a, a short-term memory and a long-term memory, but obviously information can get from some form of short-term storage into a long-term form of storage. Now, th- There is a long-standing uh, debate in the literature as to whether or not you've got separate stores for short-term and long-term memory. And that debate hasn't really been answered terribly well yet. One idea is that you just have a general memory workspace uh, somewhere in your brain. And a portion of this is more or less dedicated to short-term, uh, to medium-term, to long-term types of memories. And the other idea is that actually you're very, very discreet in different stores, uh, that short-term memory is very capacity-limited, and uh, that you have an active mechanism to translate a short-term memory into a long-term memory.
0: Okay. Does a memory get worse as we age?
3: Um, Does a a memory get worse, or does one's memory get worse? I suppose is the question. Um, Unfortunately, the answer is yes. Uh, One's memory does tend to uh, get progressively worse as one gets older, Um, but it depends on the type of memory task that you're looking at. So, typically, short-term memory capacity and function doesn't decline very much with age. what it varies with is your ability to pay effortful attention during the task. Um, But your ability to learn, for example, uh, the the faces that go with names is something that uh, we can show quantitatively actually does decrease uh, with age. Uh, So in that sense, yes, memory, uh, uh, your ability to to make new memories does go down with age. But uh, there is a, also, a, a confound here, uh, if you're very, very expert in something, um, your ability to learn new things about that particular topic uh, gets better the more, uh, the more you know, and uh, the, the more you know depends on how long you've been around, uh, okay, so, so it, it may be that the type of memory uh, that gets worse with age depends on the domain that you're talking about
0: okay so it doesn't necessarily get worse for not everything. necessarily yeah. okay and leading on from that then is there anything we can do to improve our memories or to maintain them
3: so I think there are probably two different classes of things one can do one is, is, is straightforward as a lifestyle management issue uh, get lots of good sleep uh, very very good quality sleep is very very important get lots of aerobic exercise and keep your brain stimulated and uh, have a dense social network in other words uh, meet people, uh, have lots of friends, um, and real friends, not just uh, friends on the Internet. <laughs> um, and th- that has general positive effects on memory. Now, where the learning of specific information is concerned, uh, there's a hard thing to do, which is to pay effortful attention when somebody's or when you're trying to learn something new or somebody's telling you something that you want to remember. It's easy to not remember because uh, uh, you haven't been paying attention very well. And if you pay effortful attention, uh, that makes a marked difference to your ability to remember things. But paying effortful attention or concentrating is actually a hard thing to do uh It's actually mentally exhausting, and this is why getting regular sleep is a good thing um if you if you need to learn something difficult um, for an exam, for example um the the adage of doing a little very frequently. Uh, rather than a lot infrequently is absolutely correct. Uh, uh, two hours of study a day on something for seven days is much better than fourteen hours study in one day, and intuitively, if you think about this, this makes a kind of sense. concentrating for something on fourteen hours is actually kind of hard, mm. but concentrating on something uh, for two hours a-, a day distributed over a period of time equivalent to uh, seven days or just to fourteen hours is actually pretty easy
0: okay. Um, So you're the curator of the Memory Lab exhibition, or I don't know if you would actually even call it an exhibition here at the Science Gallery. Interactive
3: exhibition. Okay,
0: I see. Um, I had a look around outside. It it looks almost like a computer lab. How would you describe it?
3: Um, It is a computer lab in the sense that uh, we're using automated tasks uh, so that we can capture data uh, from people very easily. Um, You know, there are things that uh, we want to focus on where memory is concerned, that it's simply easier uh, to to present the task using computers, but uh, we also have a variety of interactive exhibits here. We're focusing on things, for example, like uh, your ability to remember particular types of smells. Uh, We're focusing on the relationship between aerobic exercise and uh, memory, so we're going to ask people to uh, pop up on a treadmill. Uh, We're going to look at... uh, the relationship between levels of stress hormone and memory performance. So, some people are going to give uh, a small uh, sample of their saliva to allow us to do that. And we also have a, a kind of a very interactive exhibit where we're asking people to try and remember uh, the earliest events in their lives, uh, where we give them cards that uh, prime them or cue them in particular ways about things that they may have uh, done when they were younger and we actually ask them to write down the content of that memory as well.
0: Okay, and what are you going to do with all this data?
3: So uh, what we're trying to do is create what will probably be the largest database of of, uh, data in in relation to memory that has ever been generated. And what we want to do is is, uh, a wide variety of different things. We want to look at age-related changes in memory in an extremely large population. So uh, we want hundreds and preferably thousands of people to complete all of the tasks and we want people of all ages to do this so that we can work out in a really, really systematic and reliable way what sort of things change uh, in your memory as you get older. Uh, Similarly we want to look at the relationship between levels of stress hormone and and memory. There's a a very, very strong suggestion in the literature that people who've got high levels of, of stress hormones tend to have poorer memories and they tend to have shrinkage of the parts of the brain that are associated with memory. So uh, we can measure stress hormones uh, easily in saliva, and uh, we want to look at the relationship then between stress hormones and memory. But we also want to look at how exercise can be moderator, or a moderating variable where that's concerned. In other words, if you have high levels of stress hormones, but you exercise a lot, does that negate the effects of the stress hormones? We don't really know the answer to that question, and uh, it would be very, very nice to know whether or not that's true or not.
0: Okay, so are you going to publish your findings? Absolutely, or? yeah, okay. definitely. Okay, do you know when? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> it will uh.
3: depend how long it, it will take us to analyse all the data. Um, and uh, if we're looking at hundreds of people per task, uh, that's going to be complex enough in itself. And then looking at the relationship between performance across tasks is going to be even more complex again. So uh, I would imagine the earliest we'll get a paper written will be uh, probably next year. But uh, it's going to take a good six months to plough through the data, I would would think.
0: Okay, we'll look forward to that. Thank you very much, Professor. (laughs)
2: The 19th of March brought us a so-called supermoon um, and this is where the moon was closer to the Earth and has been for, um, I think, 19 years now. It's also happened to be a full moon and some people got all, all excited about this and started blaming uh, it on the Japanese earthquake and the tsunami and so on. Siberian uh, reporter Marie Boren asked Astronomy Ireland's Lee Hurley to separate fact from fiction when it comes to the moon.
4: Can you tell me, first of all, what your position is in Astronomy Ireland and what you do on a day-to-day basis?
5: Uh, yeah, well, I was working there uh, full-time in, the, in their research retail sector but uh, recently especially taking up this course in science communication that I'm doing in DCU now I've basically moved on to doing stuff in the education program there so I go around to different schools uh, teach kids a little bit about astronomy and um, so that's pretty much what I do there.
4: Okay, so kids might be asking this too, but primarily adults. What exactly is a supermoon? What does it mean and how is it different from a regular moon?
5: Okay, supermoon. Basically, the term uh, was coined by uh, actually an astrologer, not an astronomer at all, um, I think back in the 1970s. And essentially what it means is the moon varies its distance from the Earth. So roughly speaking, it varies by about 30,000 miles. Uh, So when it's closest to us, Uh, You call that perigee, and when it's further away, you call it apogee. And a supermoon is basically when the moon is very, very close to the Earth. Uh, Don't get it confused with an optical illusion, which is the moon looks very, very big when it's very close to the horizon. That's because the moon, the light from the moon, is essentially shining through more atmosphere. So it makes the moon look a lot bigger. But it's not something to be confused the two different things
4: what about when the moon looks extremely yellow or a harvest moon or a blue moon are these just all optical yeah, illusions
5: yeah that's that's all basically atmospheric illusions from our atmosphere
4: now back to the super moon there's many myths associated with the super moon but the biggest one would be that it caused a recent earthquake in Japan
5: yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going around on on the internet about that at the moment what happens is everybody knows the moon affects the tides. And when the moon is very, very close uh, to to the earth, there's a stronger gravitational force on the tides. Uh, It's about 20% stronger than it is on average. And a lot of people are basically saying that this is what causes uh, severe earthquakes. Now, from what I've researched about it, I don't see any correlation between severe earthquakes and supermoons. Um, I mean, the only one in recorded history even close to a supermoon was this earthquake in Japan. Another thing about, about earthquakes is, I uh, wouldn't claim to be a geologist, but essentially what happens is, is the movement of tectonic plates. And any sort of uh, force acting on those tectonic plates can basically be, depending on the orientation of the plates, it can work to push the plates together or further apart. So there's no there's no real correlation between between the supermoons and severe earthquakes.
4: And finally, just something for um, I don't know, just doomsayers. If the moon blew up in the morning and just completely disappeared, how would that affect our tides? Would that would that result in a tsunami, or um, would it would it affect anything else on Earth? Would it matter if we woke up and there was no moon?
5: Well, essentially, the we our moon is basically is very gravitationally or Important to us, and so it certainly would affect our orbit, uh, among other things. If the moon, I mean, what they think actually the moon, the way it was formed, is that a very large uh, asteroid about the size of Mars would have hit the Earth um, about three and a half billion years ago, and that would have formed our moon. But if if that asteroid had have been any bigger, it could have completely destroyed the planet, or if the moon ended up being even bigger than it was, um, that certainly would have changed our, our way of life here on Earth.
4: So the moon's quite important to us then.
5: <laughs> it, it does it does have its importance yeah.
4: And what about um, any other astronomical sort of events that are coming up this year apart from the supermoon? anything exciting?
5: Um, there's, there's always there's always stuff coming up. there's meteor showers and things like that. You can you can go to uh, www.astronomy.ie and they have all the latest details about upcoming events. They also hold lectures the second Monday of every month in Trinity College. Um, So lots of interesting things coming up at the moment. Can
4: anyone attend those?
5: Yeah, open to the public, so feel free to come along. Excellent.
0: Moon fans will be welcome. Coming up now, we're going to take a look at a few events that are happening
1: in the next while. Trina, what have you got there for us? So there's quite a few events to throw into your diary over the coming weeks. Irish Whale and Dolphin Group will be holding a stranding course in Kilrush in County Clare on Saturday the 10th of April. It will contain a practical element and cost approximately €35. Euro. For further information and booking, visit iwdg.ie. Astronomy Ireland will be holding a public lecture on the Large Hadron Collider on Monday, the 11th of April at 8pm in Trinity College. Dr. Stephen Myers, originally from Belfast and now Director and Accelerators and Technology at CERN, will review the progress made with the performance of the LHC since the first 7 billion electron volt collisions on the 30th of March 2010. He will highlight the accelerator physics and machine protection issues which had to be addressed in order to push the performance. Dr Myers will then further outline future plans for the LHC as its collisions increase in energy. The Chemistry Department at NUIG is accepting submissions for their summer art exhibition called Capturing Chemistry. Closing date for submissions is the 25th of May and entries are welcome from everyone, young, old students, working. Visit www.nuigalway.ie forward slash chemistry for application forms. And finally, SciFest is a series of one-day science festivals hosted in the various institutes of technology and open to all second-level students. It is sponsored by Intel and Discover Science and Engineering. The programme aims to encourage young people to engage with science and make their own discoveries. Further information on the dates and locations can be found at scifest.ie.
0: I'm a scientist. Get me out of here is the name of a fantastic science communication project that's been running in UK schools and online over the past few weeks. UCC lecturer Owen Letiz was the only Irish based scientist involved in the project. And we have Owen on the line now to tell us more. Owen, you're very welcome to the show.
6: Hi, Sylvie. It's good to talk to you.
0: Good to talk to you, too. Um, So tell us more about this initiative. What did it entail?
6: Well, it's, um, from my point of view, it entailed talking with um, UK students in schools in the UK um, over the last two weeks. Um, and I suppose really what it is, it's a sort of an engagement uh, activity um, that, that puts scientists and students together and lets them communicate with, with one another, which is something that may not, may not always happen as often as it should.
0: Okay, and how did this communication take place? It was all done online, I believe
6: yeah, that's right. There's two um main avenues if you like there are um online questions students can submit um and and that enters a sort of an inbox that i can that I can answer um over the course of the uh two weeks or there's also live chats taking place between the the scientists in individual groups um uh, uh, with students in those schools so it's it's both live and 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 offline if you like um, and and for each of the six zones taking part there are five scientists sort of students in each zone can can chat with five different scientists doing maybe different things um, and, and, and get a feel for what it's like to be a scientist um, and ask bizarre funny interesting science questions
0: Okay, uh, so what kind of questions were the students asking?
6: um There was a huge range, as you can imagine, some very very funny, some hilarious, some um very serious questions um i kind of I kind of thought there was a number of categories that they kind of fell into. There was lots of questions about uh, say my research, which is on plants and soils and biological control so you' got you' got lots of questions on your own research, which was great and um, hopefully I was well able to answer those. Um, there was lots of questions about what it was like to be a scientist. Um, you know, do you have a social life? Uh, are you married to a scientist? Are your children scientists? That sort of thing. Um, as well as how do you become a scientist? And, and the, the, the students were, were very much looking for advice, some of them. Uh, what should I do in school to become a scientist? What should I do in college? Um, what, what will it be like being a scientist? Those sorts of things.
0: Okay, and and you said there was also a lot of questions about who would win in a fight between different types of animals. Yeah,
6: that that seemed to crop up again and again. Um, you know, who would win in a fight? Would it be a you know a thirty foot grizzly bear or a giant squid? Um, who would win in a fight? Would it be a hundred ants or a, a spider or something like that? Um, you know, bizarre things that only only, you know, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen year old kids can kind of come up with. Um, there seem to be a lot of questions centered around um whether the universe was going to end, the earth was going to explode, the sun was going to explode, that sort of thing. Um, I think that's all based on or a lot of that is based on um the the new Brian Cox the documentary series uh, Wonders of the Universe I think that has a has a big role to play in the sorts of questions we were asked Mm. Um, and we also got lots of questions on on earthquakes and natural disasters which is uh, which is obviously very topical at the moment Uh, so a whole range of stuff uh, and you know and you you got very good general science questions you know just uh, random science questions that you know students wanted an answer to some of which you know I could answer some of which I just had no idea.
0: Okay. Do you have any particular favourite questions?
6: Um, I suppose uh, there, there, there's lots of them. I mean, there was some nice questions on evolution. I mean, do you believe in evolution? Do you believe in, in God, for example? Are you religious? Um, there was questions, you know, strange questions like, do do why do we sleep? Why do we dream? Um which came first, the chicken or the egg. That one crops up year Mm -hmm. on year, apparently, and it came up again. Um, Probably my my, my favourite question, um, somebody asked me, because I work on plants, and I I might have mentioned at some stage that uh, I like Venus flytraps, you know, carnivorous plants, and and somebody asked me, do Venus flytraps poo, do they, you know, do they (laughs) defecate? Um, Which I thought was a really well-thought-out question. You know, it's funny, but it's also... You know they're eating something, so that what waste happens? material must go somewhere and and it was a really interesting question which I was kind of able to answer I and hope. what
0: is the answer to that question
6: um well no they don't in in the sort of sense that that we understand this i suppose um they they consume all of the material from the insects um that they that they trap um and any waste material is just is just um dropped out of the the, the traffic like... um so no, it wasn't as 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 as, as gory as the uh, student had hoped. I imagine.
0: Okay. Um, how did you actually get involved in the project, Owen? Because you were the uh, only uh, Irish-based scientist, and this is a mainly uh, UK initiative.
6: Yeah, I, I heard about the project um, last year. It's been running for a couple of years in the UK, and I, I blogged about it on my own blogs, um and and I was just invited. To apply, um, you know, whether I'd like to take part, and luckily enough, I was I was I was picked, and I was asked would i take part, and I, I jumped at the opportunity really because I think it's a it's a really nice uh, idea, it's a really fun thing to do, and it's a it's a nice engagement thing, and mean, it fits in nicely with what I try to do, um, and it's an ongoing thing because I'm the only Irish scientist taking part. There's no schools taking part um, this year are um, in this event that just ended on Friday. Um but there have been schools from the north of Ireland take part. There's been schools this year from from Singapore of all places. So there's a good mm. spread and they, they do the organisers do welcome um applications from Irish schools and from Irish scientists to take part. So their their next event is, is in June of this year. Um so there were six There was Turkey scientists taking part this year. They're going to have 20 groups or 20 zones taking part in June. So they they very much welcome sort of participation from from Irish scientists and Irish schools uh, in in that event. So you can go online and you can you can uh, apply to take part.
0: Oh, that sounds fantastic. um just very briefly, then to uh, wrap up, I believe there was also an eviction process involved.
6: Yeah, that's how it works. That's um, that's the cruel reality of it, I suppose. Um, The the students get to vote uh, in the second week. It's a two week process. In the second week, they get to vote: who's your favourite scientist, or who's who's um, you know who did you like the best, in in a way. And then from Tuesday last to yesterday to Friday, um, one scientist per day was evicted. Now, I was evicted on Wednesday unfortunately but um oh. it, it came down to the wire on Friday uh, and the winner um Julian Rayner, won. Uh he was working on malaria and uh, you know he was very very good at engaging the the students and I think they've, they they thought his work uh, on malaria was was very very interesting. Um but the the, the eviction process is, is is great for getting the students involved I think um, and you know, I, I, it, it, taking part is 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 the main uh, attraction. I think for most of the scientists.
0: That's great. It sounds like a fantastic initiative, Owen. And thanks a million for joining us. Take care.
6: Not at all. Thank you.
0: Owen Latisse is a lecturer in UCC's School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Sciences and he also runs the blog communicate science.eu. and to find out more about the I'm a Scientist Get Me Out of Here initiative go to imascientist.org.uk where you can see all the questions that the students have been asking and the answers. <music> Culture section. This episode, we're going to be looking at a couple of uh, television programs: um, "Wonders of the Universe" with uh, the ubiquitous Professor Brian Cox, that was on uh, BBC Two, um, and a program called "Everything and Nothing" with uh, Professor Jim Al Khalili on BBC Four. Um, so I, I watched the uh, "Everything," uh, which was the first episode of uh, the program with. Jim Al-Khalili the other night. And uh, basically he is trying to explain the story of of everything, of the universe, um, and also how we as humans manage to detect and describe galaxies. Um, It's quite an interesting uh, contrast between uh, his programme and the Brian Cox programme. They cover sort of similar themes, but uh, the the main difference between them seems to be in the budget um, because, uh, you know, Brian Cox gets to go into the Namibian desert and Al Khalili gets to go to Bath. Um, He never actually (laughs) leaves the UK um, he
2: I'm not that sure how, how effective they, they used the bro- budget for Brian Cox because I don't know, it, uh, particularly the most recent one, it was, uh, it was using the a mountain and the mountain range. And they kept yeah, using the yeah, mountain range. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, I don't know, if you want to climb a mountain, climb a mountain. But it, you're just trying to sort of sh- awkwardly shoehorn mountains into every analogy. Yeah, it, it did look <laughs> a
0: little bit like a pop music video from the 80s, didn't it? Or the 90s, maybe. 90s would of, be closer
2: to D Reams, period. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Um and also actually um the the uh f- to d- illustrate gravity uh Professor Cox gets to go in a zero gravity plane uh and into a, a centrifuge used by fighter pilots but a uh, poor uh Professor Al-Khalili all he gets is a helter-skelter slide at a fun fair <laughs>
2: <laughs> Funderland, yeah <So>, yeah <laughs> you know, um he
0: he's actually uh he, he's very good at explaining things um He's quite distinctive looking. He looks a bit like a posh Bond villain, you know, the, the type who'd be stroking a fluffy white cat. White cats. Yeah. <laughs> all um, physicists have white cats. All physicists do. Which yep. they
2: may or not may not keep in a box with a radioactive isotope. <laughs> exactly. <so>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, and the, there's times also when uh, uh, Professor Al-Khalili looks like a character in a Beckett play. He uh, He's always... You know, alone, he has this uh, very distinctive bald head and he often wears a black shirt and black trousers and then appears in a black studio. So it's just like a a floating head, almost like the uh, Sinead O'Connor video where nothing compares to you. But the uh, the Everything programme did uh, address some quite interesting questions, uh, one of which had never occurred to me, which is uh, the question of why the night sky is not bright because it should be filled with the light of all the stars shining. And this was a question that uh, people and scientists had wondered about for a long time. And it was only in the 20th century when they had uh, better technology and telescopes that they actually managed to work out the answer uh, to that question, and uh the answer is that uh the light from stars takes uh so long to reach us uh because the universe is expanding and space is expanding, so by the time the light gets to us it has it has dimmed quite a bit um and also uh to figure out that explanation they they needed uh new mathematics they needed uh Einstein to come along with his uh theory of general relativity. Um, uh, which describes the uh, whole uh, space-time structure. So we had a lot of that in the uh, Brian Cox program as well, Mm. where he's trying to explain gravity. Um, So, uh, Gavin, what did you think about the... uh the explanation of gravity in the Cox program. Oh, yeah,
2: no, it's, I found it quite good, although I don't know, maybe it's just I'm not, I don't watch enough MTV to be desensitized to it, but I find it does jump around quite a lot. Suddenly he's talking about uh, black holes, then suddenly he's talking about galaxies colliding and uh, mm. looking at colliding Andromeda. It just seems, I think I'd be more interested if it stayed with. The topics for longer and discuss them a little bit more, uh, rather than hopping so quickly from huge variety of topics. Mm, and there's quite a lot big, to take topics, in, isn't yeah. there? Yeah, yeah. But I guess I don't know. They're trying to market it and make science interesting for an, a more general uh, yeah. population. But I don't know. I just it's just, it's kind of a <laughs> that sort of MTV style of um, television making where it just keeps moving. The attention span isn't. As oh, black holes oh. are boring. Tell me about something else now. Oh, galaxy slide. yeah That's not that interesting. I mm. need something entertained with something else. <laughs> so yeah, I. Don't no, but if if it, if it doesn't it is entertaining but I just think I, I personally I just wanted to like sort of dwell on the topics more yeah all.
0: well then you might have liked the everything program actually yeah. because that was a much slower pace and he did sort of focus more on just one topic and and you know explained it in great detail if I was kind of curious about the timing of showing both of these programs around the same time I would have thought it would make more sense to wait until after the Cox programs had finished and then like to put uh, show this program about uh, physics as well and astrophysics kind of maintain interest but maybe it's a case of oh people are lapping this up at the moment so let's put on another program for people who really want to know more That's all we have time for on our TV slot, I'm afraid, and that's all we have time for for this episode. Thanks to Near FM for the studio time, thanks to all our guests and contributors, and thanks for listening. Don't forget you can find us on the web at cybernia.ie and on Twitter under at cybernia, or email us on podcast at cybernia.ie.